Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast and joining me for the Texans post game show. My co-host, Stephen Kerr. Merry Christmas and happy Hanukkah to everyone out there. Stephen, thank goodness Santa and Hanukkah Harry came dressed in a number three Tampa Bay Buccaneers jersey Saturday. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it almost felt, Robert, during parts of the game, like uh, the Texans and the Buccaneers were, were trying to get in the Christmas spirit and be generous with each other. No, no, no. Let me give you this gift. Let me give you the ball. No, no, no. Let, l- allow me to do it because, yeah, there were turnovers galore. Fortunately, most of them were Tampa Bay turnovers. I, I just, the funny thing is, when the Texans had all those turnovers in the first half, if you had told me that the Texans had four turnovers plus a blocked field goal in the first half, that they should be ahead, you know, like the Denver Broncos were with the Texans a few weeks ago, like 31 to 3 or something, but they were tied at 17 at the half. So, yeah, it was a very, very strange game uh, just right before Christmas. Yeah, a lot of blown opportunities, and there could have been more opportunities for the Texans to do something because they had five turnovers, four interceptions in this game. It could have been seven turnovers and six interceptions. Justin Reed and Gary Ann Conley, if people forget, both dropped interceptions. After those two dropped interceptions, Stephen, Tampa ended up scoring a touchdown. It was their only two touchdowns of the game. Well, that's right. And, you know, the the second interception that should have been a pick six, just like the first one, that was wiped out by a penalty. So if the Texans had gone up 14 to nothing with barely any time gone off the clock, you know, that that could have been a real crushing blow for the Buccaneers. So there were plenty of chances for the Bucs to come back and win this game. Thankfully, the Texans didn't allow them to do it. The defense, as as many turnovers as they came up with, you know, they, they almost broke in the first half. I mean, we knew Tampa was going to score a lot of points. We, we knew that coming in. But you know, hail to the Texans defense. They actually held the Bucks way under their average, especially during the uh, Bucks winning streak. They only gave them 20 points for the whole game. So they really stiffened and played much better in the second half. Yeah, this, this one wasn't at all about the Texans defense uh, with all the turnovers that they had. And, you know, we could go on and on about the fact that, you know, this team doesn't have a pass rush at this point, but you know, the the one thing I, I want to say, because it feels like every week there there is some sort of gripe session about the NFL officiating and, and just the NFL rules in general. And it's a stupid rule. The, the You mentioned the interception that was returned for a touchdown, wiped out by uh, Charles Amenahu penalty. It was a blindside block. And it's, you know, when you have these interceptions, a lot of times it's just, it, it, it's got, you're going to have to do blindside because the guy, nobody knows what's going on. You don't know where the ball is. You're not expecting it. And, you know, I just, they showed the replay. I, I didn't really see a great angle on it. The one angle I could tell was in regular speed. Uh, and that angle, it just showed that it looked like as soon as the ball was intercepted, a man who blocked the guy that was blocking him and, you know, I, I don't know what you're supposed to do in that situation, but it's one of those rules, Stephen, that just drives me up the wall. It's officiating to be officiating. It's not officiating because you're worried about necessarily safety on all of these things. I mean, this started with the blindside block thing, you know, years ago. It feels like a there was a Brett Favre play somewhere along the line. But I, I just 
I don't understand it. It it, it just it, sometimes we're just trying to be officials to be officials and try to get our nose in the game or something like that. Well, it's almost like you know the hits on the quarterback. It it almost seems as if the officials, when they're given this kind of rule to call, they're going to go to the other extreme and they're going to call just everything they see, even even the hint of a questionable hit. They're just going to go ahead and call it and take their chances later. But yeah, there were several calls or even non-calls. There was, a, I think, a block in the back against the Texans at one point that kind of wondered, you know, why wasn't that called? So there were, there were numerous calls or no calls in the game that uh, the, the officials crew, honestly, and I think even for both sides, just, just did a lousy job. Thankfully, at least for the Texans, it, it didn't come back to haunt them in the game. Yeah, I mentioned the two dropped interceptions. I said it was Justin Reed, Gary, and Conley. Justin Reed, it was it would have been a tough play for him. He was trying to dive for a ball, but the ball went through his hands when he dove for it. If he got his hands under the ball, it's an interception. The Gary and Conley intercept, I mean, that would be interception. That was, and, and by the way, Justin Reed had an interception. He had a fumble recovery, so great game for him. Uh, Gary and Conley, ball hits him right in the hands right before halftime, right before Tampa gets that touchdown, that's a play that you just got to make. I mean, it's, it, it hit him in the hands as clear as anything, just like the, the ball hit the tight end for Tampa and the hands on that fourth down late in the game. The Texans did benefit from that, but you're not in that situation if Gary and Conley makes the play early because that takes away one of their touchdowns, and it, I feel like it would have just taken away that little momentum that they were gaining at the half. Yeah, it's always those little things, isn't it? That I mean, they they seem little at the time, but they can be big and come back to haunt you. And it, it definitely was one of those keys that kept the Bucks in the game. Um, but I tell you what, you know, after those first two interceptions that Jamie S. Winston threw, you know, we knew that he was prone to this. And I'm glad the Texans defense, you know, they certainly were up for it. They did in the second half at least get a better pass rush. I think the, all the sacks that they had, all three of them, uh, against Winston were in the second half. So it was good that, you know, while they had some dropped interceptions, they certainly had their share. It's just you would have liked to have seen them, you know, really capitalize on more of those opportunities because, honestly, most teams with that many turnovers, they would have won the game at least by two touchdowns or more. You mentioned the, the sacks. The Texans got two sacks from Whitney Merciless, two quarterback hits, one tackle for loss. Not a bad game for Whitney. I kind of feel like he's a little bit better than a, and just a guy, but he's not anything special. But he joins J.J. Watt and Mario Williams as the only Texans players with 50 sacks in, in the history of the franchise. And in the postgame, Bill O'Brien, Stephen said, hey, Whitney Merciless, Merciless is coming back next year. You know, he's he's a guy that's going to be out there, but they're planning to re-sign him, according to, to Bill O'Brien, supposedly. Well, you know, here's the thing. Whitney Mercer seems to go in spurts this year, especially. I mean, he had that great start to the season, the first two or three games with those fumble recoveries and sacks. And then he got really quiet, didn't hear from him. Of course, last year, you know, he played through injuries. He played out of position. This year, I would say, you know, even in the middle of the season where he was a bit inconsistent, you know, a healthy and quality Whitney Merciless, as much, I mean, the Texans just don't have a pass rush most of the time, especially without J.J. Watt being in there. And I know we'll get to that in a little bit. But, you know, Whitney Merciless coming back, I think really it needs to happen, especially because you don't know how J.J. Salt's going to hold up from year to year. So if the Texans really are committed to bringing him back, I don't have a problem with it. I don't know if they're going to really overpay him. But 
unless you think you can get a quality pass rusher to take his place next year, you know, that's something you probably have to look at. Tough to find without a first round draft choice. Those guys don't appear on the market. Bill O'Brien knows he's got to re-sign him. So that gives Whitney a ton of leverage. Uh, That should be interesting. Uh, I want to get to the hits, you know, with the Texans every week, we got to play the hits, which we we know what the hits are uh, with the Texans every week. But let me, let me stay with the good stuff before I get to the bad and the, and what I call playing the hits, Uh, Vernon Hargraves. Uh, hey, let's talk a little bit about a couple of free Christmas presents we've enjoyed as Texans fans this year. Both players had a nice little homecoming in Tampa Bay. First, we've got to go to the waiver wire pickup, Vernon Hargraves, who exacted a little revenge over his own team with that very timely tackle for loss in third and one late in the fourth quarter. Didn't hurt that Tampa's tight end dropped an easy pass on fourth down. Like I said, no question. The Texans probably lose this game if Tampa's two Pro Bowl receivers were healthy. But we got a gift-wrapped Hargraves at no cost, and we also got a gift-wrapped Jaleel Adai at pretty much no cost because he makes a game-saving interception, Stephen. And like Hargraves, he was coming home. He went to high school in Tampa. And I got to give Brian Gaines some credit because the Adai's pickup, uh, you know, his pickup's been instrumental in a, in a banged-up secondary. Don't forget the Texan safety depth was decimated by Andre Hal's sudden retirement in early April. And, and quietly gained, signed a die in early May. And for those who don't remember, an undrafted free agent from the Chargers after the 2013 draft. So he had a pretty darn good career in San Diego. Spent time as a starter. Uh, pro football focus had him with grades in the 80s. Uh, really good uh, grades as, as a player in, ni- in 2016 and 2017, I should say. But, I mean, you know, both of these guys came gift wrapped for the Texans at no cost. Yeah, and you know, the the Texans are going to have to hope they can keep doing that, especially as you mentioned, with the fewer draft choices. You know, if you can keep getting these guys who either were former number one picks or, you know, just former players from other teams that were expected, great things were expected of them, didn't come through. You mentioned Hargraves and the coverage. He had a great coverage on a, it was a 32-yard incompletion that uh, Winston threw in the end zone and then uh, several other great plays. You know he was up to play against his former team. Because, you know, Bruce Arians, he was pretty critical. I mean, he really got on Hargraves for being lazy, you know, made some other rather derogatory comments about him when uh, he was released. So you know that no matter what Hargraves said before the game, he was definitely itching to play against his former team. And he came through with some big plays in the game. All right. I I said I was going to want to play the hits a little bit. And one thing that we, it seems like we have to say every single week, Stephen, is, as Deshaun goes, the Texans go. And and this was an unusual game for the Texans because they picked up a win, uh, which the only other game I can th- think of that they picked up a win with Deshaun playing bad was, was Jacksonville. He wasn't great in the Chiefs game, but if you look through the games, those are the only ones that you could go, well, Deshaun wasn't stupendous, even though the Texans won 19 for 32 in this one, 184 yards passing, 37 yards rushing, no touchdowns, one interception, 63.2 QB rating, bunch of bad throws also. Most of them were after he tweaked his ankle. He says he's going to be fine. You could give him a slight pass on those, Steven, but he missed some easy short ones before the ankle injury. And for the second week in a row, you know, with all of that said, for the second week in a row, Deshaun came through in the fourth quarter with a big go-ahead drive. Give him credit on that 69-yard drive. 
which leads to the Fairbairn field goal because, you know, he makes some big plays. And don't forget DeAndre Carter with a big catch. His uh, maybe the biggest catch of the game with him who was in there for Will Fuller, who, well, we know the Will Fuller story at this point. Yeah, unfortunately, he goes out with yet another injury. Uh, and it wasn't even his hamstring. Now it's his groin. So now he's got a bad hamstring and a bad groin. I mean, I don't know. What is it with these guys that it, it just seems certain players, you, you get them healthy, you put them back out, they either re-injure or, you know, re-pull the same muscle or they pull a different one. But getting back to Deshaun Watson, I, I really felt, Robert, especially in the first half, the Texans' offense was the main reason that they weren't pulling away from the Buccaneers, that they didn't capitalize on on those opportunities with the interceptions, you know, with the fumbles, the blocked field goal, and things of that nature. They only had 86 yards in the first half total offensively. Watson only had 60. We knew that Tampa was a very, very strong run defense, but they also had the worst pass defense. And the Texans, I just felt, didn't take advantage of that. On one of the sacks, I think it was the first one when Watson was sacked by Jason Pierre-Paul, who uh, basically was in the backfield several times, I know that in that play, Duke Johnson was wide open, but Deshaun didn't see him. And I, I think it was a case, again, that he was holding on to the ball too long, trying to look for a play, but uh, Johnson was right there. He didn't get him, and he ended up getting sacked. So, again, you know, some of the sacks were on the offensive line, but not all of them. But, yeah, some of the throws that Watson was making – even on the short plays, it was very puzzling, I would say. Yeah, on his sacks, Rod Johnson got bulldozed on his first sack. He had a couple of sacks where, as usual, held on to the ball too long, like you said. Uh, Darren Fell is responsible for a sack late in the game when the Texans were trying to just get a couple of first downs, run out the clock. But l- let me just get big picture on you with Deshaun, Stephen, and, and get your thoughts on this. Do you think that Deshaun needs to get just a little bit more consistent or he just can't have these really just awful, do these games need to be a little bit closer to average instead of, I mean, it felt like this was bad and and the Jags game was bad. How many games do you allow a really good, like how many games would a Breeze or a, I mean, we're talking all time greats, but Breeze and Peyton and Brady and Rodgers, how many bad games are they allowed a year, do you think? Very, very few. I mean, you, you could count them on one hand, really, through a whole career, I would say. And you talk about Brady, Breeze, Aaron Rodgers, you know, Brett Favre, when he played. I, you, you could count on one hand, probably on every single one of those quarterbacks, how many bad games they have. Or if you can't count, you probably can't even remember them because there's so few. I, I feel like consistency really is the, the biggest weakness with Deshaun Watson. He's either very, very good. He makes plays that just make you go, amazing. You know, you're speechless. Or he has games where he he just misses receivers. Or as far as throwing the ball, or he just doesn't see them. I, I just sometimes think his field sense isn't really what it could be. You know, especially even being his third year in the league, I think he should be able to figure out where his receivers are and yes, I know he's being rushed, and it's easy for me to say sitting here and not having, you know, 300-pound linemen coming roaring at me from all sides. But, you know, when you've been in the league as long as he's I think he really needs to start figuring that out. And consistency, I think, is what he needs to maintain. And I mean great consistency if he wants to be talked about among the elite quarterbacks, the Bradys, the Brees, the Rodgers, those type of guys. 
I, I just don't see him there. I think he's a good quarterback with the potential to be great week in and week out. But as this season has shown us, he, he hasn't done that. He's had enough games where you kind of go, yeah, he's just not quite there yet. He's obviously better than any Texans quarterback that they've ever had, you know, at least in the sample size we've had. But consistency, I think, is his it, it's really his biggest weakness right now. See what you think of this, because you watch him and there are just too many times where he gets antsy in the pocket. He wants to roll out when he shouldn't. He kind of rolls out into sacks and into pressure sometimes. And I, I feel like O'Brien's made some real progress in the last couple of years with Deshaun and his play calling. But there needs to be more plays that have Deshaun rolling out of the pocket. I mean, I see that a lot with somebody like an Aaron Rodgers. Just get him out a little bit uh, to where he feels a little bit more... He just doesn't like to be in the pocket. You know, I just don't think he likes it. No, he clearly is not comfortable in the pocket. And I think that's that's one of the things that that may be holding him back as well. I, I also believe that, you know, quarterbacks like Deshaun, who have been used to making plays, making things happen, especially in college. Of course, you know, we saw him do it a lot at Clemson. I think that when you're used to that sort of thing, it's a hard habit to break. It's hard to get away from. I do agree with you. I think O'Brien has actually made some progress in that area. But, yeah, being in the pocket is is definitely something that he just hasn't seemed to warm up to. But it's a part of your game that you really need to develop in the NFL if you're going to be an elite quarterback. And I think if he could do that, it would help him be more consistent. And it will help him make, if not bigger plays, I think smarter plays is, is kind of what you're looking for with that. All right. I'm going to do my Casey Kasem. I'm going through my top five Texans hits and we hit a couple <laughs> of them already. Uh, we got, we got Deshaun and, and some of his uh, issues. We seem to mention these, you know, every single week uh, or at least most weeks and, and Will Fuller and his soft tissue injuries and he's in and out. And that's, that's another Texans hit. Uh, another one that has been a Texans hit, but I, I, I got to give him credit this week. I'm not sure if you've heard, but this Thursday, Stephen, we're going to have a parade for Bill O'Brien because he won his first challenge of the season. He sure did, didn't he? Um, that was interesting. I, and, you know, it was clearly something that he needed to challenge. And how many times have we said, why didn't he challenge that? He could have won that challenge. Well, he did in this case and actually won it. And you could you could criticize Bruce Arians. He, he threw the uh, no pass interference thing. And, you know, once again, he gets turned away. So in this case, Bill O'Brien actually one-upped the opposing head coach. All right. That's the good news with OB. But let me just rip him because uh, uh, I have to. It's like a weekly thing. You got. I mean, he's had a couple weeks off. We've given him some credit certain weeks of the season. But, but let me just say that nobody takes the momentum of a turnover and turns it into nothing quite like Bill O'Brien and his playbook, Stephen. You know what I'm talking about? Well, let's see. I know there was a clock management issue. Is that what you're talking about? Well, yeah, there's some clock stuff I want to get to, but this is what I'm talking about because I've watched football forever, you know, since I was a kid. And, and coach after right. coach knows that as soon as there's a turnover, a quick change of momentum, you throw the football because the defense doesn't expect to be on the field. They're caught off guard by the turnover. And now you can strike quickly. So after the Justin Reed interception, he runs Carlos Hyde on the first play for two yards. 
They end right. up settling for a field goal. It goes no. I mean, it just it, it totally kills the momentum. And then after the Angelo Blackson block field goal, he runs Carlos Hyde for no gain. After the Jonathan Joseph interception, he runs Carlos Hyde on the first play for a three-yard loss. The Texans went three and out on that possession too. So basically three times he does this in the first half and kills the momentum, Stephen. Yeah, and and all three of those instances you're talking about actually leads to something that I was kind of critical about as far as the offense, and that is the Texans, despite the fact that Tampa Bay is very good against the run, one of the top teams in the league against the run, the Texans repeatedly ran the ball on first down, ran the ball on first down. All three of those instances you're talking about, they ran the ball on first down. And in fact, the interception that Justin Reed made that that would have been a pick six, except it was called back because of the Charles O'Menehu penalty, which I know we talked about. So the Texans were setting up first and 10 at the Tampa Bay 24. Why not take a shot in the end zone? You've got this team on the ropes. It's already 7-0. The game's not even five minutes old. You just picked Jamie Winston off a second time. Instead of running the ball like what you just talked about, yeah. take a shot in the end zone. If you If you score right there, that's like a dagger in the gut. You're down 14 to nothing. The game has barely started. Who knows what could have happened from there? Yeah, we're on the same page on this. And it just I'll go through more dumb and gutless Bill O'Brien play calling because on third and nine at Tampa's 38, after the blocked field goal, O'Brien runs a screen pass to DeAndre Hopkins. On third and nine, you'd think, oh, okay. I mean, I don't like that call, period. But okay, OB trust. His field goal kicker, he doesn't want to make a mistake. I, I don't know whatever's going through his mind. But, okay, he, he thinks uh, Fairbairn can make a 54-yard field goal, you know, after a play call like that. But, no, 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 he fakes the field goal and quick punts with Fairbairn. It's it just like it, it, there's something just incredibly gutless about that whole sequence. Yeah, I was definitely not expecting that thing to happen. First, I thought, oh, he's going to kick the field goal. And then the next thing I know – they snapped the ball directly to him, and he's punting it. I yeah, I I couldn't understand it. And why do we keep throwing screen passes anyway? I, I just they never seem the Texans never <laughs> seem to be able to throw a screen. If if it goes more than four or five yards, that's actually a big gain for them. Yeah, it's uh, it's there's a long history of screen passes in Houston. I mean Kubiak, I think he he, he was a little bit better at it, but Ob's been terrible with the screen pass. And 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 I'll go into the clock management because you, you, you mentioned that to start with. And, you know, it seems like this is a weekly thing with the Texans and it's like same old song, but right before the Kenny stills interception, they were set up perfectly with the football at the end of the half chance for a two minute drill. They had all three timeouts, two minutes left, like I said, and they ran a minute off the clock with just three plays. They're forced to call a timeout after running 30 seconds off the play clock. Then they have to call a timeout or get a delay of game. Steven, after looking totally incompetent after all that, they actually could have redeemed themselves. But Deshaun Watson, you know, he throws it over the wrong shoulder and, and and Kenny Stills, you know, has no chance at it. But I just, you, ugh, I just, I'm out of it. You know, I'm out of it at this point. Yeah, I know. And it's frustrating because, you know, these guys watch film all the time. They see the same things we do and, and probably much, much deeper. So how is it that they keep repeating the same thing over and over? And of course, that this was one of the reasons that the Texans offense was so ineffective. And just to think if they had come through with some of those plays, they they could have just totally tanked the Buccaneers and, and the game would have been over maybe by halftime. Yeah. I feel like I, I, I need to text one of my buddies that, you know, is, 
going to the Bill O'Brien sessions every week. And I, I don't know if anybody has the guts to do this, but just say to Bill O'Brien, look, you know, what are you guys doing over, over the off season? If you're not working on play calling, and maybe there's a nice way to say it. I mean, not play calling, but clock management, but may, maybe there's a nice way to say it, but I, I, it's just, this is the same story year after year after year. And like I said, I don't think this is a hundred percent Bill O'Brien. This is also on Deshaun too. And, and the two of them need to work together and both of them need to get better at it. I mean, bottom line, get better at clock management because you know, that's your weakness. Yeah, there is a, it, it's a tandem thing. The coach and the quarterback have to be on the same page if they're going to make that thing work. Uh, as, as far as calling your media buddy, I mean, he, he could ask Bill O'Brien, but you know, Bill O'Brien will just give you the usual coach speak and come up with something and we can just sit there and, and take that apart. So <laughs> I don't know if it would do much good at this point. We're working hard. We're, we're, you know, we're trying to fit, you know, it's yeah, whatever. I, well, we'll just say, I, I just need to coach. I, I yeah, I, clock, clock management. That's something I just need to do better as a coaching. You know, it's, it's about coaching. I just need to get better as a coach. That's, and I, that's what and, he'll tell And me. I would follow it up by saying, uh, look, Bill, uh, what are you doing? You know, I get it. You need to do it better. What are you doing? Are you, what are you doing in the off season? Are you guys, do you go through stuff? Like, give me the details of like what you're working. It's not, this isn't like company secrets. Well, we can't tell you what we're doing. Oh, are you going through stuff? Are you, you know, just, you have to do something to change it. What are you doing? And, and like I said, you're not, this isn't like game plan secrets. This is just. Are you going through scenario stuff? It's frustrating. And we talk about this at least to some degree every single week. And yeah, look, the Texans won the game. That That's really the main thing. But when you get in the postseason, things like this are going to be much more magnified. So they really need to figure some of these things out before they get into the postseason. Okay, we go through the hits. Uh, I went through the Bill O'Brien and the clock management and Bill O'Brien and play calling and with Deshaun Watson and uh, Will Fuller's injuries. And uh, the, the last one I have is, you know, I, I got to talk about Romeo Cronell and, and what is he doing? Because once again, you had a situation with a young or mistake prone quarterback, whichever, you know, they have, whether it's Drew Locke being young a couple of weeks ago or, or a mistake prone guy like Jameis Winston, and you're inside the 10 yard line. And you got zero pass rush, none whatsoever this season without JJ Watt. And there, it's the, this is the last drive of the half for, for Jameis. And Romeo drops eight defenders in coverage, meaning basically Jameis can sit back, smoke a cigarette, have a cup of coffee. He's got all day. And, and this is the problem, Stephen. He does it twice, two times in a row. And there's eight guys covering eight. You don't need eight guys covering 18 yards in that situation. Send somebody else. Send five guys at the quarterback and, you know, you, you're not one-on-one, -on -one, but you're sort of one-on-one -on -one coverage. But make Jameis think a little bit. But do not only rush three because you got no chance. I've noticed he's done that several times throughout the season. And I, I don't know if he's just thinking, well, you know, the more guys we get in tight spaces, maybe the better chance for another pick or something of that nature. But no pass rush. You know, in the second half, all three of the Texans' sacks they had were in the second half. I mean, all of them, but... In the first half, it's as if Whitston had plenty of time, and he certainly had time on that play. I don't care how poor a quarterback you are. If you have that much time to think, you're going to have a chance to make some kind of a play, especially with that short of a field, which is what Winston had. 
All right. Last couple of things I got just, you know, poor tackling, which typically happens on short weeks. The Texans have, you know, their defense is kind of off and on with the tackling, but a lot of times that's, that's on a short week, uh, special teams. Uh, yeah, we got to talk about special teams, Steven. They've been, they were great. Boy, they sure were. And they've had several games in a row where they have just been stellar. And I saw a stat before the game yesterday, Robert, and the first quarter and even the rest of the game kind of bears this out. The Texans came into the game first in the league in defensive field position after a kickoff. In other words, where the opposing offense sets up deep in their territory. Well, special teams in the first quarter, they pinned the Bucks deep in their territory with every possession in that quarter. At the 17, at their 12, at their 15, at their 10. And they did it throughout the game. And yeah, I know you were you referenced the Kaimi Fairbairn punt, quote unquote, earlier, but that was pretty cool to watch. Hey, I mean, he actually pinned them back in their territory, even if you were kind of scratching your head of why were they doing that in the first place. But he looked pretty good on that punt. Yeah, give Seeley some credit because, you know, he has Fairbairn and the kickoff coverage doing a good job of kicking it, like not in the end zone, uh, and getting the coverage team down there. Five of the six kickoffs in total, uh, the Texans didn't let him pass the 22-yard line. You also got to mention that Brian Anger, five punts for 48 yards on average and, and three punts inside the 20. And Angelo Blackson, of course, with two blocked field goals in the last two weeks, and, and both of them huge because, I mean, yeah, how big is, is this one? If he doesn't block the field goal, if they kick the field goal, it's a three-point game, and when it's all over with, and maybe things play out differently, but it's a tie game. We're going to overtime, potentially, if Blackson doesn't make that field goal block. Yeah, and speaking of Blackson, you know, he was interviewed during the week and asked, of course, about the block field goal the week before. And then he was asked, so do you think you have any more? He says, oh, yeah, I've still got plenty more in that tank. Well, I guess you could say he called his own shot that he was going to block another one, and it came true because, yep, he blocked another one in the Tampa Bay game, and it, too, as you mentioned, was big. All right, Texans playoff scenarios. Texans are either the three or the four seed. They will host a playoff game. I'm going to make this next prediction as my Robert Land lock of the week. The Texans will have their usual early (laughs) spot on Saturday afternoon on wildcard weekend. No matter who they play, you can lock it in your plans. January 4th, book it. Maybe we can just have you do your land locks of the week. Yeah, that that would that would actually sound sound pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I would have to say that that's really what it is, and that's what made this game so much bigger, or or made this game so big. If the Texans had lost this game, then there really would have been desperation, and I would say that's probably where they're going to be in the playoffs. But it almost makes me wonder how are they going to look against Tennessee this next week? I mean, the stakes are not going to be that high. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the Texans come out flat against the Titans. And, you know, depending on what happens, you know, even if they lose to the Titans, it's either going to be three or four. So it's not going to change the stakes that much. They're still AFC South champs. Yeah, maybe by the end of the day on site, we're recording this in the middle of the day. They'll they'll have a better idea of, of what they have to do and who they might end up playing because the three likely opponents, Buffalo, Pittsburgh and Tennessee, uh, here's what I, I want you to do, Stephen. Beginning with the team you'd most like to face, rank those teams from one to three, Buffalo, the Steelers, the Bills and the Titans. Well, I don't know that I want to face the Titans like three times in the in the last four weeks. I'd say they, they have to be the least team. You know, the Buffalo Bills, I mean, they're, they're a scrappy team. I and mean, we wouldn't have thought, but of, of course, since the Texans haven't played them and how they would stack up against them. I don't know. I, I would say 
The Steelers might be the team I want to face the most, and then Buffalo is second, but Tennessee would definitely be at the bottom of my list on that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's just it, it usually comes down to quarterbacks. So, yeah, it it, it was uh, to me it was it was pretty obvious that you you do not want to face the Titans because I I think that's going to be a real tough matchup with Tannehill and he's the better quarterback between those three at this point. Josh Allen, eh, he might be a little bit better than yeah, he's got to be a little bit better than what the Steelers are running out there with. So, uh, that, th- those are your likely matchups. So it, it, that should be fun to see and. You know, I was trying to come up with Houston pro football moments on Christmas since we're uh, right here at that time of year. And and this is what I could muster up. The Texans had that awful game against the Steelers a couple of years ago and what I call the savage disaster season. I was in the building for that one. Uh, And I was also there for the Bengals game on Christmas Eve in 2016. You remember how that one ended, Stephen? Uh, the Bengals game in 2016. Yeah, that was uh, that was certainly an interesting game. I, I definitely remember the Steelers game too. But um, yeah, the Bengals in 2016, that would be another moment. Yeah, well, that's the one where they won the division uh, with a Randy Bullock missed 43-yard field goal on the final play. The Texans were only down by two because they had their extra point blocked. Andy Dalton, who was home <laughs> for the holidays, drives Cincy down the field, but his teammate... Uh, gave us a little bit of a Christmas present. It, it was just an awful game. That I mean, the, the Steelers game wasn't that much fun either. Just to be there instead of like I, I wanted to be, you know, hanging out with the family instead of watching the Texans, you know, screw around and and, and suck both of those games. Now the Oilers, they had a hell of a win on Christmas Day in '93. Some of you might remember that they ended the season on that 11 game winning streak. Their tenth straight was a 10-7 win over the 49ers, led by Steve Young and Jerry Rice. It was ugly, but it was a win, and you take those wins any way you can get them. And, yeah, the the Oilers had several signature wins over the holidays and into the new year, certainly with, the you know, the, the teams of the 70s and then the 93 team, as you mentioned. Yeah, that 93 season was just strange all the way around. Uh, what did they start, like one and four? Yep. Something like four. that, and then they reeled off that 11 straight victory. So, yeah, that was a crazy season. And then, yeah, the Christmas thing that you mentioned, 10-7. Not much of a game to watch, but you'll take the win any way you can get it. Now, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, Stephen, but I thought the Rockets' win over the Clippers Thursday reminded me a little of the Texans against the Titans. I was really impressed with their toughness and their defense when the game was on the line. They showed me something after taking that 17-point you know, crap show that they had fallen behind in the first half. And I'll tell you, the Rockets are – you just you can't count them out. I mean – Basketball is such a streaky game. It it almost makes me mad just watching it because you can go one half and the Rockets can't hit the side of a barn. And then the other half, they get it together. They start raining threes down on you. The the difference with the Rockets Clippers versus Texans Titans, though, I think the Rockets Clippers is much more of a rivalry than the Texans Titans. I mean, you would think that the Texans and Titans would have had a rivalry from the very get-go when, you know, the Texans, they come in as the new Houston team because Bud Adams moves his Oilers to Tennessee. You, you would think, at least from the fan standpoint, and even with the player standpoint after a while, that they would be more rivals. But I just don't, I don't have the same feeling about the Texans-Titans rivalry. But boy, when the Rockets and Clippers get together, there's almost always something going on, some extracurricular activities, some words being exchanged, trash talking pushing and shoving, you know, there's a lot of former Rockets and Clippers on each other's team, so I guess it may have something to do with it. 
But the Rockets Clippers, I got to tell you that that's becoming, you know, almost every game is exciting, if not on the court, you know, even in between when the plays are stopped, some things are going on. Well, Cortland Finnegan used to be the Pat Beverly of the Texans Titans rivalry. Didn't he? Well, there, yeah, there is that exception, but yeah, with Andre Johnson, Cortland Finnegan. Yeah. He, he would usually try to incite something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's had its moments, I guess, as far as Texas Titans, but it, it, it's overall, if there's any rivalry in, in the FC South with the Texans, it's been more the Jags, the Colts, I mean, the Texans have, they need to win some more games for it to really be called a rivalry, even though they've been the two best teams in the AFC South pretty much since the inception in the last 18. Is that fair to say in the last 17, 18 years? Those are the two best teams in the AFC South. I certainly think so. And, and there just needs to be more on the line, I think. The, the more games need to be played where there's something on the line, there's something to shoot for. I think that's when the rivalry aspect kicks in. Or maybe there's a controversial play at the end of the game or a controversial call where it goes one way or the other. A couple of times. So there are a lot of factors that go into a rivalry. But, you know, the I guess the Rockets and Clippers, you know, it all started with that fight a couple of years ago that I guess that, that kind of really cinched things. Because ever since then, when those two teams meet, weird things seem to happen. Last couple of things on the on the Rockets, Clippers, and, and and kind of where the Rockets are in general. The, the game itself, P.J. Tucker defensively, just unreal in the last few minutes of that game. He just shut down Kawhi what he did was all defensive team type stuff. So that impressed me. The other thing that I'm liking from the Rockets recently, not just that Russell Westbrook is playing much better basketball, but we're starting to see how the Westbrook and Harden thing can really work because there are a lot of moments now where Harden just lets Westbrook do his thing. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's bad. It's been more good than bad, luckily recently, but I think what we're seeing is it gives James the opportunity to sort of take a, a few minutes off, even when he's on the court, even more so than I think he was doing with Chris Paul, though that was happening sometime with Chris Paul. But it gives James a little bit of a breather. And then at the end of a game like he did against the Clippers, he's got the legs to be James Harden, the James Harden that we know that can just take over a game. And that's what he did. And I feel like that's the way that Westbrook sees him as a help to James is just being a, a release valve. And, a, and a, in a way they can, they're doing more where they're taking turns, which is what you need them to do for the Rockets to be successful. Well, that's right. And I mean, it, it was the same way against the, the Clippers and they did it against the Suns where, you know, you put those two together, if they are both dynamite and they're both on the floor at the same time, then the Rockets will be unstoppable. They'll certainly be more consistent. But what I've liked about Westbrook is it, he seems to be taking better shots. The the shots are certainly falling more than they were before. But yeah, he and Harden, you know, it it honestly, at, as critical as we've been to both of them, you know, at the beginning of the season, we do have to remember that, yeah, just because they played before in Oklahoma City, they're both different players since then. Yeah. And that they've evolved, their games have evolved, they've changed different parts. So you need to give them time to gel. I think sometimes we get a little impatient. You're saying, well, it's not working as well as we, well, sometimes it takes a full season for that to happen. And now I think we're just starting to see what could happen if both of them can be on their games consistently. Also, I just, I don't want to see Daniel House turn into Daniel Correa or Daniel Fuller. The, the injuries are just getting old, man. It's, it's, it's frustrating. Well, injuries on top of illness, and that I think is what has led to some of his effectiveness, uh, ineffectiveness, I should say, 
and inconsistency. Yeah, I mean, he's gotten a little bit better recently, but yeah, it's the it, it last game or two. It looks like he's starting to come around. Uh, NBA Christmas, I just, if you like NBA Christmas games, it, it's a watered down product this year with a ton of injuries. The Rockets play the Warriors without Steph Curry. Uh, they knew there'd be no, the NBA, I'm saying, knew there would be no Clay Thompson. So I don't know how bright the NBA was when they scheduled the Warriors. Also, you got the Celtics in Toronto with no Siakam, Marcus Saul, uh, probably not Fred Van Vliet. The Nuggets play the Pelicans, who stink without Zion Williamson. But, I mean, Steven, you still got Bucks and Sixers, which should be good. Lakers and Clip. I'm looking forward to Lakers and Clippers. I might have to record it in case I'm not, you know, focused in on that one. But that one I'm definitely looking forward to. Yeah, Lakers, Clippers, probably. I'll be honest. If I'm going to watch sports on Christmas Day, I'd rather watch football. I I don't really – I just haven't gotten into the last few years with all of these different games on Christmas Day with the NBA. You know, I'm going to be at my daughter's house. Let's see. What would I rather do? Enjoy homemade enchilada casserole, homemade guacamole, homemade charro beans, uh, tamales, or would I just rather sit around and watch basketball all day? Yeah, uh, no brainer. I'm, I'm eating the food. I'm visiting with the family. You know, if there's a football game on that's really good, I might watch it. But, you know, traditionally on Christmas, there really isn't a whole lot of NFL stuff. So or even college for that matter. I just don't get into the basketball Christmas Day. I, I've just never been a big watcher of that. You can eat and not talk to family, but it sounds like you actually like talking to your family, Stephen. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> you know, I actually do. And and the grandkids, I, I have a lot to do with that, too. So it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Last uh, little Houston sports note, uh, Martin Maldonado, two-year, $7 million contract. He's back. I mean, the, the Astros, you know, you, you, you didn't want to let both of him and Chirinos go, and, and they decide to invest a little bit in Maldonado. I like it. It's a, it's a, it's a smart guy to have it. I mean, he was great in the world. I mean, he's a world series hero, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And yes, Robinson Torino certainly did his share too in the world series. And during the regular season, Torino's was obviously Justin Verlander's favorite. But what I like about Maldonado is his defense is so good. And, you know, when, and, and he does show the, the durability that he can play the majority of the games. So, I was glad to at least see one of the two come back. If it, I would have hated to see both of them leave because they were both free agents. But with the catching question marks that the Astros have, you know, if you had Dustin Garneau and, and Garrett Stubbs going in, I definitely wouldn't feel comfortable. So you knew they were going to bring back one of those two. And the Astros were high on Maldonado. I mean, they, they let him get away last year, but they retraded for him at the deadline. So that shows you that they're really committed to keeping him. And if his bat, you know, it comes through every once in a while, like it did in the World Series, but his defense is unquestioned. So I, I feel a lot better about the catching situation now that they have re-signed Maldonado for a two-year deal, not just not just your typical one-year deal. So he should be around for a couple more years. I was thinking about what have been the best surprise gifts of the Houston sports calendar this year since we're, we're closing in on the end of the year, Stephen. And I, I, I don't know if you and I are going to, talk a whole lot more before uh, we get to the end of the year. The two that, I mean, the big one for me is Jordan Alvarez. I mean, w- what a gift. I mean, we had no idea that that was going to be in the Christmas stocking this year. I, I would almost put him at number one. Uh, we-, we didn't know Russell Westbrook. I'm deciding on him. He's like that gift that I'm like, uh, did I did I want that? Did I need that? 
I'm not sure yet. I'm still that's a that's a wait and see on, on for 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 Westbrook. I think Daniel House, uh, he's somebody that like just where did that come from? That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. That's like the the video game that you're. Oh my! I didn't even know about this video game. This is this is really cool. Uh, the Texans they, they've had some surprise gifts. I, I I think Bill O'Brien as GM making some moves to help out the offensive line and the running game and the and, and Kenny Stills and all of the little moves that he. I mean that that's been kind of fun too. And uh, I guess the last one I'm thinking, and if you can think of any others, just let me know. But the last thing I'm thinking about is, you know, I, I did not anticipate the Houston Cougars almost making a final four run. And, and they were fantastic, uh, the basketball team last year. So, that, I mean, this past year. So, I mean, those to me, those are the big ones. Boy, those, those are all great ones. I mean, hard to argue with any of them. I know it didn't end well, both on and off the field, but I have to say, what what really either at the the head of the list or certainly near the top of the list is that just the type of season Garrett Cole had. I mean, we knew he was a good pitcher. We knew, you know, he had upped his game since he'd been with the Astros. He really got into the analytics thing. He watched Justin Verlander and his work ethic. But my goodness, I, Robert, I just don't know that we're ever going to see a season like that again. Even if Garrett Cole goes to the Yankees, I, I just don't know. It was just so stellar almost from beginning to end. Yeah, he had a little bit of a shaky start at the very beginning, but man, once he put it into overdrive, he was unstoppable. And yeah, like I said, the World Series didn't end well. He's no longer an Astro. He's with the Yankees. But that stretch, those few months to me, had to just be the the, the thing that we just weren't expecting, that he just didn't slow down at one point. Yeah, he's kind of like that Ferrari that you, you're thinking, oh, well, he's just going to be a little it's going to be great. It's going to be a five-speed Ferrari. And you're like, wait a second. I, I jumped in this Ferrari that Santa gave me, and it's got six speeds? There's another speed to this thing? Wow. Yeah. Exactly. It was like he was on another planet or just you know putting it into another drive. I, I You know, the, the Cougars thing, I might actually rank it up a little bit higher because I just don't know that anyone expected them to go as far as they did. Uh, Bill O'Brien, yeah, as much as we've sat and, and criticized his game management and that he wants all this power and he's gotten two GMs fired basically. But you have to say, at least in the short term, the moves he's made, you know, the, the surprise trade with uh, Carlos Hyde and how that's turned out, uh, the Kenny Stills, Laramie Tunsil, something that just had to happen. They had to have a left tackle. I mean, it's hard to argue. He, he certainly gave the Texans some gifts this year with some of the moves he's made so far. Yeah, Bill O'Brien, It's he he's done – maybe a lot for this Christmas, but he might've taken away from the next couple of Christmases with some of the moves that he's made. Yeah. The tree might be empty next year and the year after. So I better enjoy it now. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it, yeah, if you're a Houston fan, there, there, there have been a lot of just total shockers under the tree that you just, you weren't expecting at all. And it, it's been really, it's been a cool year to be a Houston sports fan. It's just, a, it, it's like, I've said it before, but it's a, it's a nice time. It's a great time to be a, a Houston sports fan, even though, well, you know, we have our frustration and, and this team hasn't made it to the level that we want them to make. And that team hasn't made it up to the level that we wanted to make. And obviously we had one team that, you know, came within one, not one game, really like what, two innings away from winning the world series. Is that what it was? Yeah, it was, it was about that. And, you know, I, I know I've said this before, but that's why I think we really need to treasure the great moments because I'll tell you what, Robert, and I grew up in the 70s. I know you grew up, you know, a lot in the in the part of the 70s and the 80s. 
you know, we we had so few and far between moments like this to talk about. Uh, virtually no championships. I mean, very minor championships, you know, in hockey or, you know, sports that we really didn't watch that much. The moments that we're getting now, we really need to treasure them because the windows of opportunities are so narrow. They close so quickly. You know, things haven't gone well in the offseason for the Astros with the cheating scandal. And yeah, maybe it tainted the 2017 World Series. But look, it's a moment that we knew at that time, you know, for me, that was the best moment in Houston sports history that I've ever experienced. And I don't care what comes out of it here. Yeah, it may have tainted it to some degree, but it's just not it's not something I will ever forget. We Those are the moments that we need to hang on to because next year, you know, heaven forbid, but by this time next year, we may not have so many good things to talk about. So I don't think we should take them for granted. And I think we should cherish them when we have them. Yeah. Let us know what you, your favorite Houston sports moment was of the last year. Email us info at HoustonSportsTalk.net or you can message through Facebook or Twitter, but you know, would love to hear what your favorite moment was it, you know, Justin Verlander's no hitter. Uh, was it a particular rocket game? Was it a particular James Harden performance? Uh, just, you know, I'd love to hear what people really enjoy. Maybe it was the Patriots when uh, first time that the Texans have won a big game against the Patriots. So I uh, would love to hear from anybody on that. Otherwise, just uh, want to wish Stephen and everybody out there a wonderful Christmas, wonderful Hanukkah for those celebrating that. I mean, I grew up celebrating just a little bit of everything. I have a, a Jewish mother and a Baptist father and went to a Catholic high school and, and, and uh, we did, we did it all. So uh, I, I can, I can appreciate it. If there was a holiday, we like to, to, to celebrate it at our house, but uh, hopefully everybody has a wonderful holidays and, and we will talk to you again, uh, likely next week for the Texans game. You're listening to Houston sports talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hot-tow!